Hey everybody, happy Tuesday and welcome to the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Melkin. Today's first guest is television and film powerhouse Kenya Barris. The creator of Blackish and Black AF and the writer of Girls Trip opens up about Black Lives Matter, trying to create during these unprecedented times and what he's doing to increase awareness and recognition of Juneteenth. Then later, Mandy Moore. She teases the next season of This Is Us and explains why she's so passionate about the 2020 election. So stick around. I'm chatting with Kenya Barris after the break. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. As if Kenya Barris didn't tell on himself enough in his semi-autobiographical ABC comedy, Blackish. Well, he went and topped himself by creating and starring in Netflix Black AF. I caught up with Barris from his home in Los Angeles. So how are you? Man, it is. It seems like every day there's a new fire. Um, but I am, I am doing well. Right. Tell me I had never heard this before. They said asking how are you is like asking, saying, well, anyway, Ms. Lincoln, beside, the, beside all that, how was the play? And I was like, that's how I, right. that's how, <laughs> that's how I feel. Um, but it's we're good. How you, how are you coping with these days? These are crazy days. Um, I'm I'm you know I'm trying to I'm trying to get back to work. You know what I'm saying I think for like two, last two or three weeks it's been a, a little hard to work, um, honestly. But I'm trying to get back to work and you know trying to you know remain at normal in a world that's not normal. I think that's what we're all trying to do, right? Right. Are you hopeful at all about this world right now? Or is it hard to even wrap your mind around that? Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I have kids, so I have to be hopeful. You know, um, I feel like I also am hopeful in, in the, the moment that I'm seeing. It feels to be a much more of a unified moment than I've seen in a long time. You know, I feel like culture, mm-hmm. I feel like we're, it reminds me sort of the civil rights movements, you know, um, where it, it, people look, people are just enough is enough, you know, from all over the different walks of life. And I feel like that means a lot to me. Do you think it'll last? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think there will be lasting change. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that this moment of unity in this moment will last, but I think that this, there will be lasting change. I, think this, I do want to believe that my, my hope is that this moment will bring about some changes that can't be, you know, taken away. You know, it, I, How much of a response? Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the, I was talking to someone earlier, like, you know, the karmic irony of that Colin Kaepernick kneeled for specifically police brutality, not for equal pay or racism or this or that. Police brutality lost his job and that this man lost his life to police brutality by an officer kneeling on his neck. You know, it, there, the, the karmic irony of that can't be denied. You know, it's, and I don't believe in coincidence. I think that these things are all happening for a reason. So I have to believe that, like, there's something that, like, we're supposed to learn. And, and like, you know, if this person's life wasn't lost in vain and that we're 
all united, like Emmett Till united the civil rights movement. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like sometimes you need a, a sobering moment of humanity to make people see their own humanity mm -hmm. beyond the outside. Tell me about when you saw the George Floyd video for the first time, what went through your head? Oh man. I, 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 I saw it early. So like the first day that it came out, you know, like, or, you know, cause of mm -hmm. things. So I didn't have a, an idea of what the outcome of it was, which was really much more unsettling. You know, I thought it was police brutality. I didn't know that he, you know, it lost his life. And it was, it was leveling. You know what I'm saying? I understood, you know, I think Dave Chappelle put it so amazingly, you know what I'm saying? It, I understood so much at that moment. It became so clear, um, you know, and I just felt like, you know, we were in a moment, you know, I saw a meme, like whoever thought that race, uh, COVID would lose a 48-3 lead to racism. You know what I'm saying? Like it, we were in this moment of, you know, going through a pandemic that no one living, even if they were alive during the Spanish flu, they don't remember it. You know what I'm saying? No one living right. really remember <laughs> right. um, And so this is a moment we haven't really experienced before. And that's the, the backdrop. And like this, the, the things that had to happen for all this to happen, like we had to have that many people home. We had to have that many people watching, you know, yes. We had to have, like it was, so that's why I said start, things start to be like, it's, this isn't, you know, coincidence has been proven to be mathematically impossible, you know, and I feel like mm -hmm. not, this isn't coincidence. You know, coincidence is something that we tell ourselves because we don't understand certain things. Um, so I, I, complete, I completely agree. I think even down to the fact that when we saw the video, you're at home, you could listen to the audio. You know, it's proven people at work don't listen to audio on video. That makes a huge difference. Because if you're looking at that video, you're not hearing the voices or seeing the people reacting who are taking as horrific as the video is. This even gave it more of an opportunity because people were free to listen to the audio. I, I never thought of that, but that's absolutely right. And they were yeah, home. It's, and they were home you know, with people in the streets and the protest and to make noise and to, and they were feeling already, you know, what, what the fuck is going on with this disease? You know, like people are, at, you know, we are at, we've been burning the candle from both ends, you know, and I feel like we are at, a, at our breaking point. Mm. So how much do you, how much do you feel in your position in Hollywood to, is it get involved? Is it to have a voice? Is it to create? Where do you find your place in all of it, if that makes sense? I think all the above. You know, I think, um, you know, all the, literally all the above. I feel like I want to get involved, boots on the ground. I want to say something. I want to write about it. You know, I want to talk to my friends who I know, you know, don't look like me, but I believe their heart is in the right place. I want to talk to people who I think their heart isn't in the right place you know i want to sort of make this a moment of clarity and of, of healing you know i think that the country is sick right now 
you know, um, and I think the, the, the COVID is just a sort of, the sort of outer layer of the sickness, you know what I'm saying? And I think that we need to heal right now. And the best way to heal is together. Mm. So t- tell me about wanting to write. Have you been creative in, in this moment? Um, well, I have some outstanding contracts, so I better not say no. <laughs> um, no, I, I, have, I, I have been writing. I think the last two or three weeks, you know, and I, I've had to have talks with my partners. It's been really hard for me. To write. Um, even on the op-ed side, it's been hard for me to write, you know. Um, mm. you know, it's when, you know, when I sit down, I'm not, you know, as you know, writing is not an on and off switch, you know, you have to sort of, it's a Pavlovian sort of like training that you give yourself. And when, th- you know, when someone moves the bowl and you can't eat, you know what I'm saying? Like, in, or, you know, like the, yeah. you had a new house, you know, you know, it throws everything off. So I kind of feel like I, my training has been off, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't been in the office, mm. I haven't been around people. Comedy is a very collaborative, you know, communal thing. You know, haven't really been able to do much of either. Um, mm. These meetings are really, you know, hard. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'd much rather have coffee and sit and talk to you or have a, you know what I'm saying, whatever. I feel like it's, you know, we've gotten more and more used to it, but it's not the same. How do you, like you said, comedy is hard. And I think for me, you know, being this white dude and all of this, in terms of writing, like where do you, how do you find the balance being a comedy writer, wanting to address issues like this? And you've addressed very specific issues. You've addressed police brutality, but this seems like something bigger, grander. Where do we find that? Where do you find that balance? How do you find that balance? Or is it just you're writing, you're writing, and something clicks, and it's like, okay, this works here? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the whole notion, like I caught a lot of shit over on Black and Spark because I called it, every episode was because of slavery, something or whatever. Right. And it was like, okay, we get it. And I'm like, do you? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. now it's like, now do you get it, what I'm saying? Like, the idea that the, it's a recessive gene that we all share regardless of our color. You know what I'm saying? Like my mother used to have a statement that nothing that ever starts off wrong ends up right unless you make it, you know? And I feel like, you know, we're all sharing this recessive gene of slavery. And so I feel like it affects every moment of our lives in some way, shape, or form. You know, and I feel like certain people have had the privilege to not feel like it does affect them, but it does. You know, it really does. You might have to look a little bit harder for it, but it does. Um, so I feel like, you know, it, it, I think that this is not something for me, interesting enough that this is horrible and I'm, you know, but this is something we have been feeling for a really, really, really long time, you know? And so it has been reflected in my writing or the things I wanted to write about for a really, really, really long time. And so mm. I think that, you know, it, it, it would change my writing in some aspects, but a lot of these things were things that I've been, you know, really feeling like were important to talk about and caught a lot of shit like, you know, you're just doing blackish over. I'm like, yeah, and I'll do it over again, you know, and I'll do it over right. again. Like, and if I can find another way to do it, I'll do it. You know, to me, some of the best writers, you know, you have a voice, you have things that you like to talk about. 
if I'm not on assignment and I'm doing something, I love my family. I love telling family stories. I wanted to reboot the family, family sitcom. I wanted to be loud. I wanted to be noisy. I wanted to say things that, that only I thought I could say that wasn't fair to put in an actor's mouth. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I feel like, you know, some of those things really, really worked for me, you know, and I was really, really happy. I think it was, you know, in some aspects polarizing. You know, I think the polarization is, is probably 80-20, you know what I'm saying? You know, but a 20 can be very loud, you know, but I will say this, I don't want to do anything that's not polarizing ever again. Blackish. Yep. Black AF. Yep. What I say, is this the biggest therapy session for you? Yes. Therapy? It's beyond cathartic. <laughs> this show, in Black AF in particular, um, but yeah, both shows. You know what I'm saying? I, I got to go every day and work out culturally how I was feeling about, my, about the world, about you know my neighborhood, my community. I got to work. I get to, in Black AF, I worked a lot of things through my going through with my marriage with my kids you know what i'm saying with my own particular growth like i think that's when writing is at its best mm-hmm. something like yes. that. you can actually use it to sort of you know but i think that's one of the responsibilities of it is that you can't let the place that you're at in life affect the writing to a point where it feels malicious or it feels ugly you know what i'm saying it, it has to mm-hmm. feel like honest you know and i kind of feel like for me our you know, black AF was satire. And so I feel like the notion of some of it feeling a little bit harsh, things like that, I think that was okay. Like we don't get to do satire a lot, you know what I'm saying, in, right. in our community. So I feel like that was okay. But I also feel like it also made me look at like, that wasn't too far from who I am. <laughs> some of those moments, I'm like, maybe I am a dick. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I think that that's all great. And I was able to watch it with my kids and my family and their mom. And, like, we really sort of, like, you know, some of that was was love letters to to my kids' mom, to my kids, to the, to the things that you, people like you and, and the world have provided me. And, you know, um, I, I wanted to write a love letter to, like, where my life has grown since Blackish. Blackish was a love letter to where my life had grown to at that point. And I, right. hopefully I'll be able to do another one of those at, at some point. Do you ever, I mean, I'm imagining you do, um, sit back and go, how did I get here? What is my life? Fuck yeah, dude. I think everyone, <laughs> I think everyone, I was having this conversation. I don't care if you're, you know, the, the late, late string cashier at a, a going out of business togos. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just <laughs> like yeah. you have those moments of, of reflective sort of like thought where you're like, Contemplatively, I am not sure what has happened. You know what I'm saying? And like, and sometimes it's hmm. good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes because the outer may look like it's good, it makes the things that are not bad stick out a lot, that are not good stick out a lot more. Tyra was my first friend. You know, we grew up, she grew up in English. She got rich when we were young. And she was, because she was a supermodel, she was around a lot of very rich men, a lot of very rich people because of the nature of what she did. And she told me, she was like, rich people are really unhappy. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Because when your main concern is keeping the lights on, keeping food in the, food in the refrigerator, you know, mm-hmm. making sure your car doesn't get repossessed, it doesn't leave a lot of time for you to self-reflect. But the moment all those things start going away, the person that you start seeing in the mirror when you walk by, you're like, oh my God, that dude's an asshole. You know, like you start looking at yourself. And so I think that the notion sometime of 
financial gain can make you sort of see things in yourself that you didn't see. And we're, for the most part, in black culture, this is first-generation stuff. You know what I'm saying? This right. is first-generation stuff. And so we're not, these are all new new money problems, you know what I'm saying, nascent issues for us. And that was why, one of the reasons why I wanted to, you know, tell the story differently than Blackish, because Blackish was a middle-class family, upper-middle-class in some aspects. But the, the, the notions of things I'm talking about, it's very easy for me on the outside looking in to be like, oh my God, when I got there, because that's, as a Black kid growing up, how I grew up, I'd be like, but to really explain to people and explain to, in an aspirational but honest way, like, nah, we're still gonna have the same shit. You know what I'm saying? It's gonna look different, you know what I'm saying? Mm. You know, but it's going to be, the, you know, to have different clothes on, but it's still the same shit. And so I think that that was do, something do I wanted feel, to talk about. Do, do you feel a responsibility to try to tell the whole Black experience? Or is it just you write I mean, you I, know? I can't. And I think that's one of the things that, that happened early on with Twitter. Is that because there's so <laughs> few Black creators in, you know, in place, right? the notion of whether we want to or not, it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of, you know, weight because when, when we put our stories out, everyone feels like you're speaking for us. And so when speaking for us, us is a thousand different archetypes. We're not <laughs> monolithic, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, my story may be different. I have a, I really like Charlemagne the God from, from Breakfast Club. And he said, well, I don't know any black people like this. And one of his, his interviews and I was like well yeah you do you know me you know but the notion <laughs> of, of sometime having to be the person who speaks for everyone you can't you know what I'm saying what if you were the guy who spoke for all right. guys with black horn room glasses you know what I'm saying you don't have right. a, you, don't, you know what I'm saying like you don't have all their you know their problems and their their ups and their downs and right. so the sometimes the notion of that you do try to as much as possible know that there is a shared experience that we have and we try to speak from that but i try to be as specific because i think that speaks to the universal as much as possible and so i think that you know you tell as specific and honest a story as you can and hopefully it is reflected and and, and seen in the way that you want it to be seen by the audience who it's supposed to be for and if the people who don't who don't see it i'm actually okay with that because i think those people start a conversation with other people and that's the whole point of art mm -hmm. that's why i said the polarization was a really good thing because i'm used to sort of rolling the ball right down the middle you know but i'm learning how to put a little bit of spin on it you know what i'm saying and you get more strikes with a spin it's a different way to roll the ball mm -hmm. but you know it's a more effective way once you learn how to do it and i i don't think i would ever want to do something that didn't have polarization again how have things changed for you in terms of you walk into these big big decision meetings I imagine it's still pretty white. Is there a different feeling in the room now? People are more in tune, people are more woke, whatever we wanna call it. Um, is it a different feeling for you? And is it just a different energy or people trying to change? Does that make sense? It is absolutely a different energy. Um, I'm absolutely seeing more representation, you know what I'm saying? Um, all different groups. Mm -hmm. um, I'm lucky, you know, I work for Netflix and, and Disney has done a really good job in, in, in some aspects too, you know, but I'm, I work for Netflix right now and it's a company that is very much so in diversity. And so what I look at when I see is a lot of people who, you know, one of the 
craziest words I ever heard was safe spaces, right? Because safe, mm-hmm. the least safe place is a safe space. You know, you don't want to be around people who all think like you. You know, like that is, there's, there's zero growth that's going to happen. And so you need to make sure that, you know, the people that you're around are a sampling of the world that you actually want to live in. And so I am seeing the changes. Right. I am seeing, you know, different things. I think that, you know, people are becoming, whereas it used to be sort of a novelty, you know, like black guy in a chain or black guy in this, whatever, it's becoming a little bit of like, but what do I, you know, that's, let's get past that. But does he, you know, what does he put on, on the screen? You know, what kind of stories does he tell? What right. drafts does he turn in? Is he, a good, is, he, is he good in editing? Is he good in casting? Is he collaborative? Is he, you know what I'm saying, have good ideas? Is he a good marketer? You know, those things are starting to be what sort of should lead. And that isn't always what it's been. Mm. Yeah. For so long, and it was like, you fail once, forget about it. We're not gonna make another black movie, it failed. <laughs> have you felt that pressure? Like you cannot fail because Absolutely. it's gonna become this, Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I was a big, you know, I, I felt it with when I just did my show at Netflix, I felt it with Black AF, you know what I'm saying? Like, is it going to get fuller house numbers or Witcher numbers? Probably not. Is that a failure? I don't, I don't think so. I think that, you know, socially, it was one of the most socially talked about comedies in Twitter history. You know what I'm saying? You can go look up the hashtag right now and Blackish is, the thing I've done that I'm most proud of in terms of its change in my life, Blackish wasn't talked about like this, and that was a huge hit. You know, so mm-hmm. I think that I was really afraid of failure, and I'm still afraid of like. And failure doesn't mean you do something and people doesn't like, people don't like it. Failure mm-hmm. means that you did do something that you're not proud of, mm-hmm. and that it's you know it is something that you feel like you could have done better, and you let it go on too soon. You let it be. You know, you put it, put something out that you're not necessarily proud of, and you knew you knew could you could have done better. To me, that's failure. If you feel like you did your best with something, and you really had felt like what you were trying to say was said, I don't think that's failure. You know, I think that that. But even in the even in this culture, even in this culture where number it's a numbers game, it becomes a, it's always a numbers game. I don't play the numbers game. You know what I'm saying, and I, that might not be greatest thing because I think if you look at you know Vanilla Ice sold a ton of albums you know what I'm saying like <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> like you know I, I think that I don't, I don't I think the numbers game is really really scary to play so I feel like you have to like I like I like who I like I like ha- having my salon my group of people who I know are going to be honest with me and, and I'm like I did it for us what do you guys think and some people will be like I didn't get it some people mm. like I did but I feel like as long as I feel like the, the most most important thing that we can be is professional. You know what I'm saying? Was this a professionally written, you know, essay? Was this a professionally written, you know, script? Was this a professionally executed piece of editing? Was this, you know, like, I did I live up to the expectations of a person in my, in my, in my position? And I feel like, you know, I've looked at Adam Sandler movies and I'm like, this seems unwatchable. And I've also liked a lot of Adam Sandler movies. But the ones that I might not have liked, you know, he might have made $300, $400 million on them. You know, does he care that I didn't like it? He's doing what he wants to do. You know what I'm saying? So that's an right. example of the numbers game working for him. Right. But, but for um, me, let, I wouldn't. I want, I, want, I want my crew to like my shit. 
Mm. Let's talk about Juneteenth. Yeah. Who came up who came up with the idea of rerunning the episode? Um, ABC or you? Oh, ABC. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I would I would hope was something I was hoping they reran. You know what I'm saying? But um, Juneteenth was absolutely ABC. And, you know, I was really, really, really happy that they they did it. Um, you know, it was, it, to me, that is one of the most important things that I've ever been a part of. When, they, when we started came with the idea, um, my son had came in at the time, I think he was like seven. And I was watching something on television on Christopher Columbus. And my son was like, Dad, you know he never came to America. And I was like, I looked at him, I was like, okay, son. You know, so I think you're mistaken on this. And I looked it up. I'm like, oh, he never came to America. You know what I'm saying, and I'm like, what the fuck? And then I started, you know, I was like, I mean, he's this war criminal, which I knew, but like not to the level that it was. And I'm like, this guy never even like it. I'm like, and we have a Columbus Day. And, you know, I growing up, I thought Juneteenth, you know, I was like, Juneteenth, it's a joke. Like I was like, because I was afraid to make my white friends uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? Talking about slavery made them uncomfortable. So I just sort of, it wasn't really celebrated in California. I kind of took it as a joke. And then I thought about it one day. I'm like, this country was built on the backs of free labor of an oppressed and enslaved regime, you know what I'm saying, who was taken from their, their land. I feel like, why would we not, why would we pop fireworks and eat hot dogs on July 4th when everybody wasn't independent? You know what I'm saying? How's that Independence Day? And I was like, I really started understanding, like, this should be, it doesn't mean to get rid of Independence Day. But this should be a, a national holiday. This and so that was, you know, mm. Rel and I sort of play to the public, you know, about it. And we're actually gonna, you know, hopefully do something else. But I feel like this would mean more than any award, more than anything, to get this help be a part of, you know, the messaging that gets this day made into a national holiday. Because I think it starts to, you know, it makes your kids ask, why is this a holiday? You know, and you have to say, let me tell you why it's a holiday. You know, and you have to really get into it. And there was fuckery in, in that day. You know what I'm saying? It's late. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It was two and a half. Right. You know, like, you know, we, it's still part of the fuckery that we live with every day. You know what I'm saying? So it's the, <laughs> the irony of that in itself is, is, is something that I'm like, it needs to be talked about. What will you do Friday to mark the, the holiday? Um, not work. <laughs> not work um i will you know i'm gonna probably have some conversations with some people i'm gonna probably try and you know spend some time with my family and, and spend some time with friends and, and just you know be reflective you know and try to plan for what next the next juneteenth will be because maybe it'll be bigger you know for all actually mm. part of the virginia made it their second um second being the second state of the union to um to make it a national holiday. You know, I'm, I've been right. back and forth online with Gavin Newsom and trying to, I would think California, it's, who was a leader and who's handled this situation with the protests and COVID. And he's handled it incredibly well. I think we should be part of that leader group. You know, I think that, mm. you know, if we, if Christopher Columbus, after we knew for as long as we knew, had his day, you know what I'm saying? I think at the very least, you know what I'm saying? In terms of just healing for all of us that we can have this day. Um, will you be getting involved with the 2020 election? How much will you be getting involved? As much as I can, you know, I might, you know, I might write an episode of Blackish about it. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely doing some things, some, you know, some activism. I'm definitely doing some grassroots things. 
Um, the census is a really big deal to me. You know, I think that as much as I can, I'm trying to be involved in it. I think that voter suppression is a real, real, real problem. And we saw it recently, you know, on the Tuesdays, Super Tuesdays, you know, with people being told they had to wait outside for seven hours while they were voting booths empty inside, you know? Um, right. It's not a joke. It's something that like, you know, I, I look at right now what's happening with the police and I tell people, they know they're being watched and this is happening. They're, they come home and watch it every day. They know they're being watched and this is happening. What the fuck do you think they're doing when they're not being watched? You know, it's, it literally is, it's a, it, it's a compulsion. You know what I'm saying? It is something that they have been doing for so long that they can't stop themselves. You know, I am not anti-police because if, if I hear a creak in my house, I am the first to call the police. You know what I'm saying? Like, could you please deal with that officer? Like I, but I definitely feel like we have to change the structure. We have to change the, doesn't need to be a mobilizing army. It, you know, the power needs to be given to people who understand it and respect it. I, I read somewhere that it's 1,500 hours to become a barber and it's 880 hours to become a cop. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's insane. Yeah. You know, so I feel like we have to sort of, you know, make those, you know, make a person who goes into law enforcement feel like, understand that this is a respected job with a lot of, you know, weight to it. And that, you know, why not have four years of college under your belt? You know what I'm saying? Or why not have, you know, two and a half years of academy under your belt? You know, why not get the sensitivity training? Why not do these things? So I feel like that is for me just digging, but going behind the curtain, which is the kind of storytelling I'm doing is, you know, something I really want to see happen more often. Do, do you ever get nervous? I think about my husband. He's a Mexican immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, he was undocumented. And the phone would ring. And I knew he was out there. And if it was him, my heart stopped every time yeah. the phone rang. Yeah. Do you get like that with your sons? I get that with, with everyone. Every time the phone, any time I get a call late at night, it's one of the first things that happens for me is did something happen with the police and I said, did something or was somebody, you know, like it's, it's the, the notion I grew up with a lot of salient visions of like the world is a rough place. I still to this day, I'm, I'm, I do well for myself, I guess, financially, but I still, when I'm with my boys in the car, I'm like, no oh, police, eight o'clock police three o'clock. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, why am I calling out the police? I'm okay, dude. I don't have, I have no reason to do this, but I still call them out. I'm still like, you know what I'm saying? Everyone should just be aware to our right, there are officers. You know what I'm saying? Like, because I know, I remember how it went growing up and I feel like at the same time, I know that there are certain things that, you know, if there was a, a situation when someone was an immigrant and they're undocumented, there were ICE check stations. You know what I'm saying? And that person had, you know, been paying taxes, been here 35 years, you know what I'm saying? But like just one simple moment and your life, like that, like that, your life is changed. You know what I'm saying? And I kind of feel like it is, you know, it, it's, the moments are, I, I talked to people, you said my, my husband, like I talked to my friends and they were, I was having a conversation and one of the ladies being funny was like, why did you want to get married? And they were like, because we had to. You know what I'm saying? They're like, they were like, because we could, and because we had to. Like, they're like, this didn't matter to us. But it's the idea of taking part of a system 
that didn't necessarily take part in us. I'm saying to show that we still want that's that's the beauty of niche groups in this country that they take part in systems that don't necessarily take part in them. I'm saying and that's the beauty of like being a part of something bigger than yourself. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to play the game and test it, even though you know it's not going to really it's not set up for you to win. You know what I'm saying? Mm. You know, you know, it's not set up, even though you know it's it might be it might have some derogatory or pejorative things that might come about from you doing it. But you're like, I want to do this because I, I know that people behind me are going to say it was important that I did. You know, so be, you know, and I think that that is a, you know, a part of, you know, why living on the fringes, I would never, if you gave me, you know, a billion dollars and said, you could be born, not black. I wouldn't take it. Not for a billion dollars. You know what I'm saying? Because, Living on the fringes and living on the outside of what this world is, is it gives you compassion. It gives you scope. It gives you perspective. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's really important in the world that we're in today. Kenya, this was amazing. I could keep going on with you. This was was awesome. Thank Thank you so much. That was Kenya Barris. Black AF is available on Netflix. I'm going to take a short break right now, but when I come back, I'm talking to This Is Us star Mandy Moore. If you're like me and spend hours on Instagram scrolling past all the over-filtered, perfect highlight reels of other women and just wish you had someone to commiserate with about your nightly shame spirals, I have great news for you. I'm Jade Iovine, and I'm the host of Tell Me About It, the weekly podcast that's here to remind you that the women we constantly compare ourselves to, yes, even that one, also have lives that are far from perfect. Whether it's admitting all the times you've texted your ex, navigating the world of fertility treatments, or feeling like the only one in the room with depression, nothing quite compares to the relief you feel when another woman admits they've stood exactly where you are and lived to tell the tale. So cancel that Zoom happy hour. You know you didn't want to go anyway. And come hang with me as I talk to women I respect about all the insecurities, mistakes, and the heartbreaks that they don't normally post about on Instagram. Join me for Heart to Hearts with tech CMO Bozema St. John, environmentalist and influencer Steph Shep, actress Jamie Lynn Siegler, and many more. Listen to Tell Me About It with Jade Iovine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Mandy Moore has earned an Emmy and Golden Globe nomination for her work as family matriarch Rebecca Pearson on NBC's This Is Us. She's also a singer and songwriter and has become one of Hollywood's most outspoken political activists. She was actually one of the first celebs to endorse Mayor Pete for president. I caught up with Moore from her home in Los Angeles at the end of May to talk about the next season of This Is Us, her life during the pandemic, and so much more. How's Mandy Moore doing in this crazy upside-down world? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm hanging in there as well, yeah. feeling grateful to have a job and a home and getting through the days and no no complaints. So what have you been doing? Are you baking? Are you binging? Both. <laughs> uh, I, I am definitely baking more. Um, trying to be creative, but not sort of put that burden on myself. I I find that like I I'm astounded by it. I have a friend who like wrote an entire record during quarantine. I just I'm not I don't feel particularly inspired or motivated right now in that regard. I'm 
I'm writing a little bit here and there. Um, my husband and I have been doing these sort of weekly Instagram concerts just to play music because we were planning on being on on tour for my record right now. And so it's like there's some sort of catharsis in that. But um, uh, other than that, just just trying to find some semblance of a routine and it kind of changes on a daily basis, like exercising and taking walks with the dogs and, you know, trying to just hang in there like most people, I guess. So you're not, so you're not making a lot of music while you're in quarantine. Not writing a ton of music. No, I I feel like I'm going to allow, like not judge myself and allow the experience to sort of wash over me. And then we'll see what comes out. Like when this is a little bit more behind us, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not big on wanting to write a record about this time in particular or write music about this time. It's, I'm not sure we're all going to want to remember it, you know? (laughs) So why crystallize it into, to song or something, but, and I'm sure we're, by the way, going to have plenty of like quarantine themed music and screenplays and lots of art (laughs) will come out of this. So you were supposed to be touring. How much does that break your heart? It's definitely disappointing. I've had to kind of, come to terms with, um, you know, early on, obviously, like mourning that uh, experience not coming to be. Um, But then, you know, it's like there's much bigger fish to fry. Like there are are actual, you know, what's keeping in context with what's actually been unfolding in this world over the last two and a half months, it, it, it kind of snaps you back into reality. I mean, I think it's all relative and we should all be allowed to grieve for, you know, uh, weddings that have been postponed and vacations and all these big life events and graduations. And my heart is definitely with, with kids right now that are graduating high school and college and not having that fully realized experience. But, um, yeah, I think just keeping in perspective, like this is a moment that will make us stronger and we're all going to come out the other side and, um, you know, hopefully have a lot more perspective and gratitude and, I don't know. I don't know what else. So let's talk about This Is Us. Yes, sir. Rebecca, what kind of research are you doing to understand Alzheimer's? What what have you known about it? What how much deep dive do you do? I uh somehow have not been personally touched by this disease that affects uh nearly 6 million Americans, um, two-thirds of those are women, disproportionately, disproportionately African-American and Latina women. It's really insane. I mean, I I obviously were very lucky on a show like This Is Us uh, to have uh, the leadership with Dan Fogelman and our writers, and they're so much, they're so thorough, there's so much accuracy, um, and we deal with, you know, a multitude of different issues. Um, and so I, I knew that this was coming down the pike for my character for the last uh, several seasons, just not necessarily knowing when it was going to be introduced. And even halfway through this season, I was like, oh, we, we were kind of like leaning towards it a little bit and and hinting towards it. And I, I pulled our showrunners aside and I was like, is this, we're starting? Cause I just, I want to know. And I was given like the go ahead and I kind of just dove headfirst into lots of surface research. I talked to, uh, I spoke to a few neurologists, um, kind of just did some deep diving on the internet myself. And then I found a podcast and a book 
by a journalist named Greg O'Brien, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, I think at 59, and he's almost 70 now. Uh, and his mother and his father and his like maternal grandmother, like he has a long lineage of, of a family history of Alzheimer's and dementia. And he, because he's an, uh, a journalist and he's a writer, he's been able to like capture his experience so wow. articulately and it's so brave and vulnerable. So I found his podcast and his book on Pluto, like that became sort of my Bible um, because he's speaking firsthand. I mean, I watch documentaries. I, I, I really, I, I tried to get as much information as I could, but nothing was quite as helpful as getting that like first person account and perspective of you know, the way he describes sort of, you know, in the flash of a second, he could lose 60% of his short-term memory. And it takes a minute to sort of come back. And he kind of described it as like just completely turning off like the lights in the house. And that was an interesting visual kind of cue that I gave myself at certain points and certain scenes and episodes this season to really think about, you know, what this woman is going through without necessarily having a name to it until she does, of course, get diagnosed. Yeah. So we're going to get some more backstory on Rebecca and Miguel. What do we know? What yes. are we going to get? What do you know at this point? What have they told you that you're going to tell me? I mean, <laughs> I think I think it's one of the most exciting challenges of this show to take, you know, a couple that people revere and have such affection for like Jack and Rebecca and to find a way to engender people <laughs> to her her second husband to this this man that she finds later in life they've both sort of like you know withstood this trauma of losing this person that they really love and I think there's a real bonding because of that um, but getting people to sort of fall in love with their love story is going to be a delicious challenge, I think, for the next two seasons before the show is done. I know, you know, as much as the audience knows at this point, Rebecca and Miguel were in each other's lives. And I think she particularly leaned on him a little heavier, like post Jack's passing. He kind of became like the de facto like man around the house and like fixed things. And I think was there to a, a, a shoulder for her to, you know, cry on more or less. But there was there's I think we're going to explore kind of what precipitated this falling out between them, because We've seen in seasons past, the next time they really connect with each other is about 10 years later, like nine or 10 years later. So it's like, and he he lives in a different state. So he's not in their lives anymore, especially not in a, you know, a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm curious what, what that falling out sort of comes from. Mm -hmm. And I know that's something we're going to kind of explore and then pick up in that 2008 sort of era when they do kind of reconnect and and figure out how they <laughs> how they get together is it easier to know when the series is coming to an end or would you rather not know i think that it's a little hmm i i i, I like knowing i mean we've shot pretty much um a good portion of the finale, like the series finale. So we kind of know how it all buttons oh, right, up. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I, I think it gives the writers more leeway and freedom to sort of think about how we're going to sort of meet 
where we are right now in this story, how we're going to sort of bridge those two worlds together. So I, I'm I'm quite excited at like the challenge of that and and where like how we're going to sort of find ourselves kind of really at the end of this season in particular, too, because that kind of just leaves us, you know, the last remaining 18 episodes to um, to, to get to the end. So are you going to be getting how how involved are you going to be getting into the president in the presidential election? I want to get as involved as we can be. I mean, there is it continues on a daily basis to feel like there is more and more at stake. And I just yeah, I, 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 I'm not quite sure like how what involvement is going to tangibly look like, because, you know, like I, I'm not sure how much like you know, physical contact we're going to be able to have with one another in terms of like canvassing. I was all excited. Like, I want to get out and actually knock on doors. And like, I want to go to swing states and help campaign for like, you know, for Amy McGrath in Kentucky. Like, I don't, I I, I mean, I think a lot more is going to have to sort of exist on social media and digitally. Um, but I'm down to do my part and help out in any way possible to, you know, to get Biden elected. Why is, why is it so important to you? I mean, I, how much time do we have? (laughs) Like I said, there is, there is so much at stake. I think, um, considering the inept response in particular to this pandemic that we're living through, like it couldn't have illustrated any more that it is just time for new leadership. Um, in every regard, I, I I think the government's response um, has just been abysmal and abhorrent, and it's embarrassing. And uh, I mean, even before we sort of found ourselves in this position two and a half months ago, I you know have been sort of a, I was a vocal Buttigieg supporter, and um, I'm just I'm I'm passionate about seeing new leadership and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on for all the reasons why, <laughs> but um, but I, I I mean, I don't think anything speaks clearer than what we're all sort of living through on a daily basis right now in the middle of of uh, you know COVID nineteen. Obviously, you're passionate. You don't hold back. You're outspoken about it. Have you ever had someone in your career say, you know what, you may not want to be that out there with your politics? Maybe dial it back. I mean, I. I am passionate and I think we all have a responsibility at this point to make noise, to educate ourselves on the issues that impact us and impact people that we love, impact people that we don't know. (laughs) Um, I, I think like now more than ever, we have to be vocal. We have to use whatever platform we have to have these conversations, to create a dialogue uh, with the world at large and with our own communities and our own families and friends, like we are not going to be able to be true change makers and, you know, take action in the world if we're not willing to sort of stick our necks out a little bit and have conversations that may be uncomfortable. And so, no, no one's ever really told me otherwise. I mean, but it also doesn't feel like there, there's there's just so much on the line for so many people for all of us, quite frankly, that like, I just don't see any other option other than, than being political. Like, 
it, it's it's a privilege. And I, I like to to sort of sit this out and to say like, oh, it's not my preferred candidate. Like, for sure, we all understand that. It's a it was a crazy process. And it is sort of like, wow, here, here we find ourselves like in this position all these months later with this extraordinarily diverse like field of candidates that were running for president. And maybe it's not the person that you assumed at the beginning of the process. But the point is like we need change and we need change now and we cannot withstand the next four years of this this sort of status quo. It's hurting too many people. Um, so, yeah, at that it's like at that point, I don't know. I can't not say something. <laughs> so when are you going to run for office? <laughs> I'm, I am never going to run for office. No, but I never love, say never. I, I'm fascinated. No, no, I'm saying never. <laughs> I am not the least bit qualified, but I will continue to use my platform to advocate for change and to advocate advocate for people that I believe, you know, stand a good chance of really making change in this world and um, and doing good in this world. And yeah, it's it's fascinating. I love it. I love I've loved politics for for quite a while now. And it's it's the thing in my life that I've sort of been quietly passionate about. And then, you know, I, I kind of I, I, I kind of sort of dipped my toe in the waters and the 2016 election. And then, you know, with this election, I was like, and, and 2018, I guess, like sort of building upon that. It just feels like, oh, we can't not get involved in some capacity. Mandy, this is great. This is so much fun. It's so much fun. It's nice to see your face and get to it's talk good with to you. see you and talk to you. And <laughs> hopefully we'll do it in person. Yeah. One of these days. Well, stay safe. Stay sane. Thank you. You too. That was Mandy Moore. And that's it for today's episode of The Big Ticket. Coming up tomorrow, I have a packed show with Hollywood star Darren Chris, the morning show's Mark Duplass, and Diane Guerrero of Doom Patrol. For now, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. And for all your Hollywood news, go to Variety.com. Stay safe and be well, and I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 